Okay, hi friends, welcome back to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You're very welcome joining us today. And today we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew and we're in our second of about a week or so when we're going to be looking at some of the miracles of Jesus that Matthew talks about and the fact that he was using them as a way of presenting, proving in fact that Jesus was the Messiah as mentioned in the Old Testament teachings. To the point of the fact that not only the miracles that he chooses to talk about but the orders in which he places them. If you are here for the first time, then why not consider clicking on that subscribe button to make sure you don't miss another episode. And please do hang on at the end where I'll give you more information about different ways that you can connect with my ministry and lots of other free teaching resources that I am making available to people both now and in the future. So with that all said, thank you again for joining me and I'll see you at the back end. Bye for now. Okay, folks, let's remind ourselves where we're up to by revisiting the text and what happens when Jesus enters Capernaum and a Roman centurion approaches him. So we're picking up in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, which says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralysed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another I say, come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marvelled and said to those who followed him, Assuredly I say to you, I have not found such great a faith, not even in Israel. So this is the second healing in this series that are going to be described for us over the next couple of chapters, and it's the healing of the servant of the centurion. So first of all, let's just talk for a moment about what a centurion was and what they did. In the Roman army, there was such a thing as a legion, which consisted of 60 groups of 100 men, 6,000 soldiers. And each of those 100 men had a centurion who had authority over them. Someone has said they were the cement that held the Roman army together. They were, in a sense, a sort of elite soldier who had risen up through the ranks of the Roman army. And because of their position, they would have enjoyed some extra benefits attached to their position. Now this centurion, he had a servant, probably one of the benefits of his position, but that servant is dreadfully sick. Now the Greek words used here to indicate that he was unwell, actually I read in one commentary that it actually means that he was in excruciating pain. So the centurion comes to Jesus and he says, please heal him, please heal my servant. And Jesus says, all right, I'll come back home with you and I'll heal him. But the centurion then says, you don't have to come back to my house, just speak the word. And then he goes on to say, I'm a man under authority and I understand that people under me, I give a command and they do it. 
So I know you don't actually have to come to my home. I know the authority you have, so just speak your word and I know that it will be done. And Jesus says in response to that, and to the people around him, wow, I haven't found faith like that even in all of Israel. Here's a man standing before Jesus who understands who he is, understands the authority that he has, and he understands the power that he has. But at this point, Jesus does something interesting. He not only agrees and issues the word of healing for the centurion's servant, but he then takes the opportunity to draw attention to this situation and in a sense is supposed to teach the others, his disciples and others around a lesson. One of the very real characteristics of Jesus's ministry is every time he saw something happening in the real world, he would tie it into something spiritual. So he would use what was happening in the moment, and that's very much a case in point here to what he uses as an opportunity to teach his followers. But then look what he says next in verse 11 through 13. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And the servant was healed that very same hour. Now this phrase about being cast out into outer darkness where there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth, this is interpreted by some as referring to hell. Now I have to confess I have a couple of problems with that interpretation. But I have to admit before I tell you this, I must confess that I have for years had great difficulty with this passage of scripture. I've wrestled and grappled with it for a very long time. Because for me, there's some problems in interpreting the verse that way. In verse 10, he prefigures what he's about to say, this thing about being cast out and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth, by saying, I say to you. So we need to understand, it seems to me, he appears to be talking specifically to those who are following him, people like his disciples. Yet at one and the same time, he's talking about lost people. So the real problem, I suppose, the nub of it is our interpretation of the phrase, the sons of the kingdom, which he uses in verse 12. Now, it's also something he will use later in the Gospel of Matthew of people lost, but lost in a certain way. And he specifically states that and uses it in this way in other places like the parable of Matthew 13. Now, I don't have time to go into the details of that now, but I'll get into it more when we actually get to that chapter 13 and deal with the parable of of what's called the parable of the tares. So it seems to me what he's doing, he's talking about people, people who have made a decision at some level to be followers, but he appears to be talking about them in terms of of them being cast out in this way, which is a little scary. Because if he's talking about believers, does that mean that we can be cast into this outer darkness phrase where there's going to be a weeping and a wailing and a gnashing of teeth? That seems particularly problematic if you're interpreting this to mean hell. Like I've said, I'm not going to be specifically dogmatic on this as this passage has given me no end of difficulty over the years. But in my estimation, I've reached the point and I'm at peace with believing, well, it's my contention, by interpreting this passage 
within the context with when it's, it sits and especially within the context of what Matthew's trying to do in this chapter in relation to presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of a Messiah that we have to contend with this till we can come up with a solution. What I found helpful was when I did some research to ask what the meaning of this little phrase, outer darkness, meant, because it's, a, it's not a common phrase. In fact, if you look it up in the New Testament, you'll discover it only appears three times. And in all of those three occurrences, it only appears in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 2, it appears to give us an image to help us understand what it means to feel isolated, to be set apart from when others around you are receiving blessing. And in Matthew chapter 2, it's spoken of of a banquet, where he uses the illustration of a banquet, where there are those who are inside the banquet hall, and there are those who are outside the banquet hall, and they are stated to be in this outer darkness, this darkness outside. And what I found helpful was understanding that sometimes this phrase is translated outer darkness and sometimes it's translated darkness outside. And some would say it's perfectly reasonable to translate it that way, darkness outside, when coming to this phrase Jesus has used here in the situation of Matthew chapter 8. The idea of being in the darkness outside and being in the outer darkness Well, it has a different type of vibe, doesn't it? doesn't feel quite the same to be in the darkness outside than it is to be cast into outer darkness. So the picture that is being used here is saying that some are going to sit and celebrate, if you like, with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and others are going to miss that joyful experience. They're not going to be in a position in that banquet. They're going to be outside in the darkness. But that's just half of it. What about the wailing and the gnashing of teeth? Well, that's a phrase that sometimes it's almost entered into modern parlance as referring to hell. But that's not exactly what's going on there. It's a metaphor that is used within scripture to paint a picture of not specifically what hell is like, but it is actually is more used to be a phrase that would describe any situation where one would experience great grief or suffering usually when there's some kind of loss. Now, some Bible scholars have come to this passage and have come to the conclusion that what this passage is teaching about, that some believers are going to get into heaven and the marriage supper of the Lamb, but because they didn't have great faith, they just believed enough to get through the pearly gates, so to speak, that they're not going to be able to enjoy sitting down at the banquet, at the banquet at which the rewards for the faithful will be given and distributed. They're going to be outside of that. And because they're going to know it's happening, they're going to be there, but not be there in a sense. There's going to be an intense feeling of grief. But the grief is over the fact that to some level, they've wasted their life here on earth. Maybe knowing that they only came to faith in later years, having years and years and years of opportunities presented to them to which they could choose to accept Christ and live the Christian life and chose not to to the last moment. I'm sure there will be a sense of regret in heaven for those that have done that. As a matter of fact, one commentator I read said, and I find this quote helpful, the wailing and the gnashing of teeth speaks of the describing of a grief experience by true Christians over the wasted opportunities of life. 
So rather than the joy of those with great faith that some will experience, others will experience a sense of grief at the loss by not serving the Lord or being obedient to his world in the life lived. And I believe the point Jesus is making here is not one about the difference between having faith and no faith. It's about the difference between having a little faith and having a great faith, a richness of faith. Look again at the context. In verse 10, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So those with great faith, or to use the phrase in James chapter 2, which I think is really good, he said, to those who are rich in faith, they are the ones who are going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and celebrate, in a sense, with no regrets. One preacher I heard suggests that this is a picture of those who are going to be seated with Christ. They're going to sit with him while others, yes, they had enough faith to believe that Christ was the Son of God and who got into heaven. They're going to experience a sense of loss, a grief, because they didn't have the richness of faith in the life that they lived. In other words, they didn't follow the Lord in their earthly lives. And at the banquet, they're going to be outside of that in a sense, and in a sense sort of spiritually wishing they'd spent their life living for Jesus Christ rather than what they did. Anyway, back to the main thing. The main point of the text is Matthew is describing a series of miracles. Now, it's also good and useful to know that these miracles are not presented in chronological order. Matthew doesn't say that that's what he's doing and that, it would appear, was not his intention. We know that by comparing this passage with other passages in the Synoptic Gospels, which would tell us that Matthew is deliberately arranging them to demonstrate something, and what he's doing is he's demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah. So first, Jesus heals the man with leprosy, and then Matthew uses the illustration of him healing the servant of the centurion. And then in the process, by the way, he says, uh, you need to have a great faith like this guy, he uses it as a, as a teaching moment, a God moment, to say, look at this guy. You need to have a faith like this guy in order that you can f receive the full blessings, not only in this life, but in the, in the life to come. And that's where the point where it brings us to the third miracle in the trilogy. And this one's really interesting because the Lord will heal Peter's mother-in-law. So let's pick up the text in 8.14. When Jesus came onto Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left and she arose and served them. When evening had come, the people brought to him many who were demon-possessed and he cast out spirits with the word and healed them, all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself bore our infirmities, he bore our sins. So interesting. First of all, here, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Now, in another account of this in the Gospel of Luke, we know that Peter actually asked for Jesus to do this. So we can assume that Peter considered this a real blessing. Just in case any of you were planning to insert a mother-in-law joke at this point. But Luke tells us, in addition to what Matthew said here, that Peter actually considered this a blessing upon his household. Now, we're told she has a fever. Now, there were several different types of fevers described by record keepers from those days. One was called, what we would suppose called today, a malaise fever, 
which was marked by weakness and wasting. It would often last for months and months and would frequently end in a complete decline which ultimately finished in death. But there was another one called an intermittent fever, which was a little something like our current day typhoid fever. Now this was a type of fever that was apparently very common in that part of the region of the Holy Land, probably because of the mosquitoes that bred nearby. And many commentators think that that's the kind of fever that she had. Either way, the point is both types of fevers were, were in a sense chronic and were seen and experienced to have no cure at that time. And both led to a pretty miserable experience and existence for those who had it. So the party comes in and they discover her ill with this fever and the text tells us that Jesus again, he touches her hand and the fever left her. Now notice this is an instantaneous healing to the point that she immediately gets up and begins serving them. So the point being made here in the text very strongly is that the healing is immediate and was so complete that she was able to get up and go about her activities of daily living indicating just how complete this healing really was. But then it tells us that the word gets out about this and the other things that he's been doing. And by evening, a mass of people have appeared, bringing with them the sick and the demon possessed. And it tells us that he heals the sick and casts out demons. Okay, at this point, we've looked basically at three miracles. The miracle of the healing of the man with leprosy, the second one, the healing of the centurion's servant, and the third, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. But the whole point of it comes down to these verses now, where it talks about him doing wider healings, wider miracles, and it tells us that this was done, that it might be fulfilled, that which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, where it says, he did these things where he took upon himself our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And by the way, that's a direct quotation from Isaiah 53, verse 4. In other words, Matthew is saying, I just described to you these three miracles and beyond, and these miracles are absolutely the fulfillment of a prophecy, a prophecy concerning the Messiah. And these miracles that I'm recording for you now, his Jewish readers then and for us today, they're, they're recorded to demonstrate that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And that by doing these miracles, he was fulfilling that prophecy of the Messiah. Now, just before we move on, I, need to, I feel we need at this point to just pause for a moment and make a very important point. There are people out there today who teach that Jesus died for sickness and ill health in exactly the same way as he died for sins. And by teaching that, what they therefore say is that if you believe in him, he will heal you of all sickness. And I really feel I need to say a word about that. Let me be clear. I believe that as Christians, we should be praying for the healing of one another. If someone is sick amongst us, we should go and lay hands on them and pray for them and ask for healing. But I do not believe that Jesus died for sickness like he died for sin. Jesus died for sin, and that means that the moment anybody trusts him, they are forgiven. And that is true. But if he died for sickness in the same way that he died for sin, then at the point of trusting in him, we would be healed immediately right away of everything. But we all know that there are people who trust in him who aren't healed all the time. And all of us, unless the Lord returns, 
all of us at the end will become sick and die. That's the sensory physical reality of the human experience. So we need to be able to explain that. So those who quote this verse and say he took our infirmities and bore our sickness, and that means they can preach that because he bore our sickness on the cross, therefore that you can trust in him and you absolutely will be healed by nature, also suggesting that if you don't get healed, it's because you've not got enough faith. Well, we have to answer that by making the simple observation that he bore the sickness through his life, not his death, through the fulfilling of his life as the Messiah on earth. Now, please, friends, don't misunderstand me. I believe God can and does heal people. He can do anything he wants. But that's radically different than saying that Jesus died for sickness, like he died for sin. And therefore, in a sense, they're saying he has to heal you if you're ill. And it's only your lack of faith that stops that healing happening. Because that perspective is really, really different from the true biblical perspective, I believe. It's really obvious from reading the New Testament with just one eye open and your brain engaged that even within the biblical narrative, God doesn't heal everybody all the time. Paul, one of the great heroes of the Christian faith, had a physical problem, which he referred to as his thorn in his flesh, all his life. And he repeatedly asked the Lord to take it away from him. And the Lord said no. So the Bible does not teach that Jesus, on the death of the cross, died for sickness in the same way that he died for sin. And thereby implying that God has got to heal us all the time. I think that teaching hurts a great many people. A great many people who embraced it and didn't experience healing will often walk away from the Christian faith. And even more tragically, some reach the end of their life and they view death as a failure. A failure of their faith rather than the victory in Christ that death really is. I think that's the real tragic sense of this teaching, that some people lose their sense of the security of their salvation. They have it robbed from them at the very last moment by this incorrect teaching. Anyway, having said that, let me just draw together what we've said here. Jesus here now in chapter 8 has been seen to work, well, three main miracles for us. And we've run through them together rather rapidly. And we get down to the end here. And Matthew tells us why he has told us about them. The whole reason he's put them in the narrative. And that's because he wants to show us that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy. And thereby that proves he is the Messiah. The Messiah of God foretold throughout the whole of the Old Testament. But I don't want us to just stop here with that because Matthew is going to go on and tell us something else that's very pertinent to this discussion. But we shall pick that up in the next episode. Wow, friends, important stuff, big stuff. I do hope you're benefiting from it and that you'll join me back here again tomorrow. And like I said at the start, if you're new to this, please know that there's always a transcript available of each and every one of these talks available on the pod hosting website. 
and you'll find that at thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com. Also there you'll find links to things like the YouTube channel, my Facebook page, the LinkedIn page and Patreon, places where I also put some more formal structured discipleship type training courses, lots of resources and lots of things coming through all the time in those other places. So please have a look there. But wherever you're getting your podcast from, doesn't matter which provider, whether it's uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts and all these other ones, iHeartRadio, Podcatcher, Podhoster, all of those, there should be an opportunity there to click on the subscribe button. And that way you'll never miss another episode. But also I would respectfully ask if you are benefiting from this, then why not consider posting a like or sharing the link so that other people may be given the opportunity to make the same decision that you have to join this huge community of people around the world who've made the decision to make the study of the Bible, the Word of God, part of the rhythm of their daily lives. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you who have made that decision to go on this journey with me and I do trust I'll see you back here again tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.